Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others and the planet. Welcome to episode 29 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have with us today Mr. Sean Fields and Michael Sanders, authors of the best-selling lean management book, Quantum Lean. Quantum Lean offers a new approach to operational excellence, and I look forward to exploring this with Sean and Michael today. Let's get into the episode. Sean and Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Guys, yes, thank you very much. Uh, thanks. Guys, what, what's your backstory in relation to Lean? Like, What got you involved in Lean and Enterprise Excellence originally? Uh, Sean, I might let you take it away and then yeah. Michael. Yeah. Well, for me, I, in a way, it started at birth for me because... I, I think that I just had an eye for, you know, kind of messing with things and trying to make them better. Like when I was a kid, I actually dug a sanitary landfill in our backyard and horrified my mom, you know, because I was just tinkering with stuff, just trying to, you know, get it better. And I actually didn't want to be an engineer for a long time. But then, you know, at a certain point, I realized I had to surrender to destiny. And so I kind of, you know, chose to become an engineer. But uh, part, I'd say a big part of also the backstory is, uh, you know, like Michael and I have worked in a lot of different areas of the world and, you know, most of the states in the United States, but uh, we've had also the unique privilege of working in certain regions that I would say are a big challenge in trying to implement any kind of systematic approach to uh, operational excellence. And that, that helped birth a whole lot of the quantum lean idea. And what I mean by that is that uh, there's, there's uh, one area that Michael and I've worked in that's called West Texas that we've done a lot of work in. And, it's it's an area that's uh, where I would say the culture, it's very much a down-to-earth, show-me type of culture. It's very bottom line. Uh, if you're going to go into that environment and try to implement something, you'd better be on your A-game because it's not only that there's, there's a culture that's very bottom line, but also most so many of the businesses you work with, there's no data. There's no, it's, it's utter chaos. It's firefighting. And so you have to bring every kind of ability from technical to dealing with people, building a rapport. And that really informed a whole lot of the approach to quantum lean because you have to get to the point pretty fast and you have to be able to analyze fast and make a call really fast. And so that was really part of, of my backstory with lean is there. And then, uh, you know, Michael can certainly inject there as well. And Michael has a very uh, colorful background. Yeah, but Sean, that, that sounds very common, mate, what you just explained. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael, what about yourself, mate? What got, what got you down the track of looking for this new approach of quantum lean and your backstory? Well, uh, I'll try to be as quick as possible. <laughs> like Sean said, my backstory is pretty colorful. As you see from my accent, I came to the United States uh, 10 days short of my 22nd birthday. But I grew up my childhood in a third world country where resources were extremely scarce. So from the get-go, from the moment you remember your parents telling you to be efficient and to be very, very uh, 
the savings of all things that you can use in the future. In other words, stay away from any kind of uh, additional waste that there is. So that was embedded in my blood. And uh, through different countries, I passed. Uh, it took me about five and a half years until I came to the United States, literally. And uh, when I came to the U.S., I ended up uh, first. I landed in West Texas, and that's the, <laughs> that's the beauty about that. I was confronted with a lot of folks who. Uh, were asking for why and show me uh, the, the, the proof. Uh, they, they will not go for any kind of, uh, let's say, guru-stated statements or, or, or any kind of experts claiming something. They didn't care. They wanted proof in front of their eyes. And that's really challenging. And I loved it because I had uh, gone and I had uh, uh, lived through many of the proof that they, proofs that they were looking for. I was lucky enough and I came here to go through schooling and uh, get out of it. And uh, my last year of biochemic, biochemistry major, my undergraduate, I came up with the compound. Long story short, I created three companies out of that. Seven years later, I sold it off and, and uh, went to PhD program. And one of the reasons that I really got into lean was when I was having these manufacturing, sophisticated manufacturing operations, I was producing very advanced food products. And I had these processes and I truly didn't understand how processes could be optimized. So I faced those pains. When I sold off, I was lucky and successful. I said, I'm gonna learn this. When I went to learning schooling and getting into engineering and so on, then I realized there is a better way. So one thing led to the other one after I finished my PhD program, I was a professor for a while and uh, living in Michigan. And I got introduced to General Motors and Toyota Corporation through some of my graduate students. And a few years later, GM asked me to go and teach courses to their managers in terms of uh, lean-related uh, metrics and uh, measurements and also a balance-type scorecard for uh, managers. And that led me to uh, get involved in... Uh, uh, different manufacturing uh, companies that were either tier one, tier two, or tier three suppliers to automotive industry and getting very familiar deeply with Toyota system. Once I uh, was very comfortable with that, I found out that there were quite a number of approaches for implementing Toyota system or lean manufacturing system. And uh, I contrasted with my knowledge, both scholastically and experienced, and I realized that there is a better way. And uh, prior to that, I had worked worked uh, four years with Sean, then I went back uh, uh, working with Sean again, and we independently got together and came up with this idea of quantum lean and validated that in a variety of different industries and companies and settings that were extremely challenging, from small, large, uh, very sophisticated to primitive operations. We validated our uh, theory, then we were extremely sound that quantum lane is the better way, is the fastest way, is the cheapest way to improve and convert organizations to a much, much more effective and efficient machine. And that was just a, a pinnacle of our uh, findings. And then we decided to write the book. A few years later, we were able to publish it. Well, you, you both have a rich um, background in lean and enterprise excellence. Might start with Sean. I'm keen to explore this because if you talk about in Australia, Australia is a very salt of the earth type of country too, where right. people don't like any jargon. People just like it told how it is. They more want to learn through seeing or doing it, which I, I value. I think that's, I respect that. 
But oh yeah, John, what what are the key elements? Some of the key elements of quantum lean that you found really helps, and why is it different? And then, Michael, I might come to some final elements from you on it too. Okay, so let me. I'll, I'll give a little background on lean, but uh, for those who aren't really familiar with lean, it's a system to improve business efficiency, and it's based on the Toyota production system. And a big piece of this uh, system is the identification and elimination of what is called waste. And what Michael and I found when we implement when we were implementing this idea, you know, at, at the beginnings of our lean career, we found that that's where the problem started to begin. I would say complication, you know, because one of the things they do in lean is that they classify waste eight different ways. You know, they'll talk about overproduction, motion, uh, inventory, and so forth. And so, you know, right there, you've got a situation where you've got to explain to somebody waste in eight different forms. And that takes, that takes some time and takes some refinement. And so, you know, what we did is that with quantum lean, the fundamental idea we go at is that we bypass the waste idea and we go right to the issue of a product's time and fulfillment because uh, number one, everybody can relate to time and everybody can relate to the idea that time is money. And so we, the, the one breakthrough that we came up with is let's just really pound away on time and fulfillment. The second breakthrough that we came up with, and we really don't see this in any other lean version, is that the time is strictly looked at from the viewpoint of the product. So, you know, if I were going to give a really good illustration of that, uh, let's say, for example, an employee has to spend 10 minutes looking for tools. In a typical lean implementation, they're going to zero in and say, oh, that worker is committing the waste of motion and travel having to look for tools. In quantum lean, it's looked at as the product is having to spend 10 minutes waiting for tools to become available. But this starts to make a really big difference in how you analyze things. Uh, and, you know, because when you start to just look at time and then do it from the standpoint of the product, we were able to create an analytic method that just uses three symbols. Like if you look at value stream mapping, and for those who aren't familiar with lean, value stream mapping is a diagramming method that's very frequently used in lean. And value stream mapping employs 26 plus symbols. So you're having to teach people's eight different types of wastes, and then you're having to teach them 26 plus symbols. And, uh, you know, and I can, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for all of us here, but I'm, and I'm, but Michael will chime, Michael will chime in and agree. But if, when I look at, uh, a value stream map, in my opinion, I'm just going, what the heck is going on? You know, the, the, the initials WTF come to mind when I see a value stream map. So, you know, when we employ the, our diagramming method with three symbols and we don't look at waste, we just look at time, things become a lot simpler to people. It, it appeals to their common sense completely. And it's all about serving the product, which if you've ever, and I'm sure you have, Brad, but you work with people that are hourly or work on the floor, they can relate to the idea of let's get the product out of here. And, and it also avoids blame on people. We're just talking about what does the product need? We're not saying you're being wasteful, you're doing the wrong thing. What does the product need? And let's get the product out of here. So that's, that's where we found it's a really good approach. It's simple, it's very direct, and it allows a really complete elimination of waste. It sounds very powerful. And Michael, I'll hand over to you on this now. And I know that originally a lot of the lean drivers out of 
you know, Toyota and other companies at the time was on lead time reduction. It was about nail the lead time and get the lead time reduction down. Michael, do you mind explaining, was that part of your approach? And then what other elements have you found really important here with Quantum Lean? Yes, that is true. And lead time reduction has been there as one of the most critical elements to lean system. The difference that we provide is to look into the time related to the product. When you talk about traditional lead time, there are a lot of resources that come to play. And often that lead time ignores the idea of the time that's spent in pre-sales activities, then bring in this uh, information from sales folks and given to the manufacturing. That entire time is ignored, but promises made to the customers. So often in many settings that we have encountered in hundreds of companies, particularly custom shops, when we say custom shops, you're not talking about small item manufacturers or parts makers. We're talking as large as industrial size, uh, uh, let's say heat exchangers or fans that go to uh, uh, mining operations and huge, huge products. These are custom products in a sense that each product doesn't repeat itself in the same specifications over and over. So when you look at that, many of the times when the sales folks bring the information to the inside of the facility to give handoff to design and engineering and manufacturing, the lead time starts at that moment for the company. However, the promises are made to the customer and lead time has started perhaps two or three weeks before. And that is ignored. And that's the sad part. We talk about products timing system and from the inception of the idea of the product, when the uh, time is uh, promised to the customer, in other words, the PO is issued from that moment we believe the time and system of the product starts. So a portion of the time that's lost pre-manufacturing is also included, whereas in lead time, that portion is not included. And that is a kind of a difference that we see. More importantly, to take the time from the angle or standpoint of product makes a huge difference. Because in lead time, you allocate and say, okay, certain weeks are allocated for engineering and design to take care of the final specifications approved by the customer. And then certain time allocated for uh, scheduling and, and, and planning department to plan it and then uh, the, sale, the, the uh, procurement piece and so on. We talk about product itself. When does it start moving forward? One analogy comes to mind is the idea of, uh, which was very well portrayed in a movie called Castaway by Tom Hanks. I'm sure most of your audience have seen that. And at the start of the movie, Tom Hanks goes to this FedEx facility, and I think it's Russia, and uh, asks uh, the uh, clerk to hand him a package. He opens the package, and if you all remember, he takes out a clock. He looks at the clock, clock shows something like 72 or 78 hours, whereas the promise was 24 hours. So the idea is to put a timer, a, a, a clock on a product from the moment that's incepted in terms of uh, accepting the PO from the customer until it is de delivered. When you look at that, 
you're going to realize that a lot of additional times are embedded to the product's fulfillment. So if you just take the product itself and say, at any turn, product needs service by certain resources, and don't accuse resources of not doing their jobs, don't attack them, don't worry about why they didn't do it faster. It's not the idea of having the hamster run on the wheel faster. It's the idea of getting the product out. Really, the resource is not to blame at all. We don't ever go to a customer and talk to them and get into the shop floor and blame the operators for not doing a fast job because it makes no sense. It does, doesn't matter how fast they do. If the product is still waiting to be served, it is still waiting to be served. So that makes a big difference when it comes to lead time defined by us, which we call it time and system of the product. Uh, as it's being fulfilled versus traditional lead time that uh, you know, traditional approach to lean was was what was talking about michael i really love the simplicity of what you're talking about but the power of it like i'm just listening to that conversation thinking wow the amount of unnecessary things that happen that would get just pushed out of the system and improved purely based on the team looking at the um, product and the flow rather than starting to think about what they're doing. Because I've, I've seen it when you go into factories and you go to people and you talk to them about the eight wastes and they go, do you want me to work faster? It's like, yeah. no, we don't want anyone to work faster. <laughs> we want, yeah. <laughs> so, and what you've described, just you would not get that because it's about yeah. the product. Sean, do you mind um, talking a bit about that side where if we talk traditionally and lean where we go, we want to optimize value creation and we want to get eliminate waste. Mm -hmm. What have you seen, Sean, with this? Because I'm I can see that you're going to get big gains based on what yourself and Michael are both talking about. But what have you seen? Well, we've seen big gains. But uh, if you're talking about what we've seen, now you're asking what we've seen when you're talking when you're going at it from the standpoint of, you know, eliminating waste until only value remains. Yeah, that's the, it, Sean. Really, thing, well, what, what waste have you seen eliminated really oh, by the team well, focusing on the product? Well, yeah, by focusing on the product, uh, well, one thing is the issue of value itself, because everybody goes in to a situation with an idea of what value is, and like snowflakes, no two are alike. So getting people even aligned on the idea of value, uh, to me, is honestly kind of crazy, you know, because to me, it just takes too long, and we can talk about what the customer is willing to pay for, but which customer you know, I mean, it's kind of like, and a lot of, I've dealt with plenty of customers, they want you to give it away, you know, so what, I mean, what are we really talking about here? But to me, well, and I'll give you an example. Let's say you're in an implementation and you're going over the different, what we call value added tasks or non-value added tasks. And to me, a lot of the times people get into these lengthy debates. Oh, this is value added. Oh, this is not value added. Like I'm wrapping it in packaging. Well, we've got to do that. Well, but is a customer really paying for packaging? And to me, it's generally solved by who has the emptiest bladder. You know, I mean, whoever has to go to the bathroom first generally says, okay, whatever. And then they leave. And then we decide that decides what's value added or not value added. And when you go into the product and you're just talking about time, it's, it's, we can do things in a very cut and dried way and, and there, you eliminate all these debates. And plus everybody knows what time is. We, there's no, you know, when we talk about from the standpoint of the product, there's no ambiguity to it. So there's not even getting people aligned to that. But the other thing that, and to me, I'll, I'll give an analogy to people who, uh, you know, are still trying to wrap their mind about what we're talking about. But uh, in World War II, 
you know, when we were, you know, when we were fighting, uh, you know, the out, the Axis powers in Europe, uh, you know, we went on big bombing runs over Germany and, uh, you may or may not know this, but one of our big targets, uh, was ball bearing facilities. Because when you think about it, if you attack ball bearing facilities, what happens to a country's ability to create war? It pretty much goes away. If you don't have ball bearings, you don't have airplanes, you don't have tanks, you don't have transport vehicles to get troops in the field. You basically have, you can't even run your radar, you know, because the radar pivots on, on ball bearings. And by doing that, we were able to win the war in a simpler way. And that's the way we look at quantum lean. Time is like the ball bearing of waste. If you, if you, if you dissolve time out of the system, if you just like drain it, waste has nowhere to hide and it drains along with the time, but it's, but you don't have to go through the exercise of saying, is this value added, non-value added? Is this waste? What kind of waste is it? And also by going from stem with the product, like we've talked about before, it really just sidesteps the whole issue of pointing the finger at people and saying, Hey, why are you, why are you walking 10 miles to get tools? Or, you know, why, you know, why did it take you so long to start this job? It's just, let's, let's serve the product. But yeah. that's what we found. So it gets that absolute focus on the ultimate thing that's going to deliver outcomes for the customer. Precisely. And yeah, I'll Brad, let me, Brad, I'd like to add one thing to that value idea. It's important. I think in, in the Western countries, we look into these buzzwords value, power, uh, quality. And uh, unfortunately, we are very much sold off of the marketing campaigns, advertising that really glamorizes these words. In a classic and uh, scientific way, if you look at the term value, the producer has no right to even impose and say, I'm creating value. What action I am doing is value added or non-value added. Fundamentally, that's wrong because value is purely determined by the customer, by the recipient of the product. Now, product can be in goods or services. The, the idea is value is when you and I become a customer, go buy something, whatever we give up for what we gain, the difference in that is going to be value. If the benefit that, that we gain off of the burden that we incur is zero, the value is zero. No matter what the manufacturer claims, it, there is no value. But if you buy something and you expect that benefit is going to be higher than you expected, or you really want it, let's say you spend 10 bucks, you got $12 worth of uh, product or services. Now you have plus $2 of value. Most of the time, people miss this point and they think that, they are the ones in the manufacturing setting are going to create value. Who am I as a manufacturer to say that, you know what, I'm going to add this feature and customer is going to pay for it. Therefore, this is value. If you want true value, add that feature, have customer not to pay you anything. Then that, that becomes true definition of value for the customer. But by adding that and charging them and because they are paying, you're not creating any value anyway. So I really don't want to get into this idea of what's value or what's value added or non-value added. These are, to me, tentacle issues that go along with value stream mapping. And that mapping is such a complex ordeal. You go to shop floor, people have been there working with machines and assembly lines and so on for many years. You talk to them about 26 symbols, they turn around, they're totally lost. We go there, we talk to them and say, you know, guys, you see that item right there by the end of the line, you want to make sure it's not going to be stopping, it's going to be flowing. 
as much as possible because every stop means that product is in delay mode. Once it's in delay, it incurs time. You don't want that. They instantly latch onto it and they, they want to follow that. They understand that because everything they do is to serve the product. It makes it simpler. It makes it much easier to understand. More importantly, in my book, it stays with them. They don't forget it. You do classic value stream mapping, you walk away a month, three months, or two years later, the moment you walk away, they forget how to have the symbols. And that's not the way. We are not there to teach them symbols. We are there to make their jobs easier for them. So that can be the easier the job, the safer the environment. And therefore, it is better attended to the product to have a higher quality chance. And if the product is higher quality, then now you're talking, you have higher quality means better product in faster time. Therefore, it's going to be much, much cheaper to produce and everybody wins. The simplicity is what we really want to go after. Yeah, I love, I love the simplicity of what you guys are both describing here. With the, I can see in a factory example where you've got people working on the line and a traditional eight waste approach, they might see that machine breakdown is not within their power but I can see with your model that they would quickly go, well, the product's waiting a long time because the machine's breaking down. We need to figure out how to stop this machine breaking down. Yeah. Right. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, and see, that was a, I'll, I'll put it this way. You get people on a frame of reference where they can consistently work against the same thing because that's, well, in my experience when I was working in industry, uh, if you were trying to cost justify an improvement, you could practically cost justify anything, you know, depending on what your assumptions were and depending on the framework you looked at it under. And because nobody had a consistent way of looking at what is a cost saving. But if you're looking at it from the standpoint of the product, it is a totally consistent way of basically uh, weighing out how good is an improvement. And it's, and it's very consistently done, and it's not all over the map. Because if you look at other lean implementations, something may be looked at from the standpoint of the resource. Most of the time, that's how it's looked at. It may be from the standpoint of the product. It could be from the standpoint of the customer, and so on. And, and when you're looking at resource, which resource are you looking at it from the standpoint of? And so, you know, we're looking at it from the product because one tendency when early on when I was, you know, when Michael and I were implementing lean is that an operator might say something like, well, yeah, I have to set the product aside, but it's okay because I'm working on a different product and you're going, no, but it's about the product. It's not about you. I don't yeah. care whether you're busy. Yeah. yeah. You can talk to your girlfriend on the phone for all I care what's happening to the product. And yeah, we'll say stuff like that, you know, call your girlfriend on the phone. If the product's being taken care of, we're okay. <laughs> You know? yeah. And and no. to me, a lot of times, and we'll we'll get a little earthier than that. But you know, <laughs> it, when, when you're you know when you're talking to people that are hourly on the floor, being earthy is a is a good rapport. You know, is a good way of getting rapport. Yeah, so. that being down to earth. Um, yeah, Michael, I've got one question I want to pose to you, Michael. The concept of, and I'm going to talk back to a lean term, the overproduction, where we're not producing at the pace of the customer. And I could see one people thinking, okay. We're, we're focusing on the product and we're going to focus on the time of the product and keep it moving. But how do we deal with just inventory building up and we could just be producing for the sake of producing? Michael, do you mind explaining some elements from your guys, what you guys think in that regard? Sure. Uh, we don't really encourage people produce and just because they can produce, <clears throat> but we do encourage them produce. Number one, they must have everything they need before they start the production step. That's number one. Number two, 
we assume that it's already sold. Basically, if you don't have the market for it, there's no need to produce. We are very, very hard on building up inventory because it creates a lot of uh, very, very complex uh, cost-related issues. And, and, you know, CFOs and financial folks really don't like it. And they rule a lot of things because of that, which become ultimately huge inhibitor of true lean. And we'd want to avoid that because it's not necessary. Again, here comes complexity. So, uh, yes, uh, Companies that make custom products, they are normally producing it to order. And as you know, uh, from the standpoint of scientifically speaking, customer decoupling uh, order point, there are four different phases for that, whether you're producing to order or to stock and so on and so forth. So when you're producing, uh, when you're setting a factory setting that produces for mass uh, number of products to go to retail stores, uh, Toyota uh, approached that from the standpoint of, uh, changing the whole uh, inventory control system by not just producing and putting in the parking lots or, or car lots with the hope of selling. So their approach is very different. I don't know if your audience know this or not. And we like that very much because in mass production lines, you really don't have complete uh, or, or, or accurate number of the products that need to be produced and sold. You don't have that. However, Toyota has bypassed it by a very intelligent way of doing it. They literally have two different companies. One is Toyota Production Company or Toyota Manufacturing System. The other one is Toyota, the, the sales arm, Toyota Sales Corporation, something like that. So the manufacturing piece produces for this company. And this company, which is Toyota company, is the buying company of the units. So they accurately say to the manufacturer how many units of what model to be produced. That's accurate. But the way they get it from the field is by allocation. They go to dealerships and allocate to them how many units of what model they can sell in what period of time based on their past history of performance. If let's say last three months, one dealership was supposed to be selling 10 units, they sold it in 60 days as opposed to 90 days. So they allocate a little bit more for them. So they control that way. Uh, they do not allow the manufacturing arm to go crazy and just produce all over the map. However, even today, if you go to other manufacturers of automotives, for instance, GM and others, they are still producing and putting in parking lots as you drive by in the US. I don't know how it's in Australia. In the US, you see these massive parking lots filled up with new vehicles and none of them are being sold. Almost reminds me of pens in an in a office supply store. You go there and you can grab as many pens as you want. It's always there, you know? So that is not very good to the consumer because it jacks up the price. There is inventory cost. There is you know, the keep up or maintenance of the, the large facility costs, banks get paid more because of the dealerships borrowing the money to buy. And all of these come to you and me. We take the burden and pay more. And the way we pay more, we get fooled by advertising. Say, oh, there's 20% discount. Discount 20% off of what? Off of jacked up 400% price, you know? <laughs> so uh, coming back to your uh, Original question, the idea is to make sure that you have a good control over the sales. Here in our version, sales must be a part of this time-based uh, approach. When we say product starts the time, definitely involves the sales. It's no longer sales comes and says, we anticipate to forecast such and such units for next month. No, 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 that's not the way it works. We want to know how far, how deep you've gone to insuring and, and acquiring those POs. 
and then we don't start the production activities until we know the PO is at hand. This is ironic, and this is really, really important to mention that when you have everything at hand and you know the product is ordered and PO is there, it's really fast to produce. Our approach with this time-based uh, analysis is that it really reduces the production time and fulfilling the product to be uh, reaching its destination of customer's hand is so fast. It really makes not much of a difference. Traditionally, if a company gives 14 weeks timeline as a lead time, we have been able to bring it down to two weeks or less. So what difference does it make? You have 12 weeks to sit around. We are not asking you to produce, go sell more, sell as much as you can. So revenue increases, your cost of production per unit decreases, everybody wins. Yeah, it's a big outcome. That's a big outcome. Well, thank you for covering that because it's a, it's a big topic that a lot of people talk on. Sean, I've got a question for you. Is if someone's looking to start out with Quantum Lean, and I know they can buy the book, but what advice would you give them as a starting point to getting into this new approach? Well, uh, I would, and I would advise this on any lean approach, but uh, and, but also for quantum lean. But to me, there are certain questions you need to answer before you get into an implementation at all. Like, you know, one is, is my business situation right where lean can address what my immediate uh, issues are? Uh, for example, we've had this recent COVID situation, and a lot of businesses have experienced their demand plummeting completely. And there's there are a few things that lean a business out better than an absolute, you know, uh, plummeting of demand. And so, number one, if you've uh, got sufficient demand where your production might not be able to keep up properly, or your lead times are greater than what the customer is desiring, or you can use some cost reduction. Uh, you know, to me, lean is a, is a good candidate and quantum lean is a good candidate. But uh, sometimes businesses decide to pursue lean and it's not necessarily something that's going to fit their business interests at that moment. At some point it will, but at that point it may not. But, but a second thing that I tell people to uh, think about is really think about your management situation. Because one thing people talk about with Lean a whole bunch is, uh, you know, we need managers that are collaborative and, you know, they don't need to be autocratic. We need respect for people. But interestingly enough, uh, you know, to me, respect for people will go a long way. But in our, in our studies, you know, at Beehive Fund, you know, Michael and I are part of a or nonprofit organization called Beehive Fund. When we've done work with businesses, really Lean can be done in all kinds of management styles. I mean, there have been some managers I met. I didn't care for the guys too much, but you can actually get it done. But the one element that we have seen is if that manager follows up, follows up, follows up, that's the, that's the key. And so if, because to me, I, I've never found a bigger indicator of desire than follow-up. To me, it's bigger than money, bigger than anything else. If somebody follows up, they want it. And if the person who writes the check wants it, it has a way of happening. But there's a third thing I would tell any business to really think about, and this could be a show of its own, and I'll try to be brief about it, but make sure your metrics and incentives are really properly consistent with a lean operation because businesses incentivize all kinds of behaviors that will totally pull the plug on anything lean. Like I'll give an example of just a simple metric. I, Michael and I worked with this business that made uh, 
uh, gas separation vessels for the oil field. And this was a large company, but we were working with one of their, you know, branch plants. And this branch plant, by using quantum lean ideas, was able, in very short order, they were able to double their production. They half their lead time, and they had the same number of people at their plant. And I was, I was standing there, and the plant manager was confronted by the president of the large company and the president of the large company said, where's the beef? Basically the plant manager had decided nothing had happened there. And I'm, when I, and I can almost see a look on your face, Brad, where you're going, what on earth is that all about? And, uh, but that's what I'm about to tell you in, in that situation, that company was a fabrication company and they lived and died by man hours. And in this initial phase, we were getting the product flowing and the man hours didn't change on the jobs, but we were doing things to get delay out of the situation where they were able to increase throughput, keep the staffing level, and decrease the, the lead time radically, but the man hours didn't show anything. But from the president's standpoint, if you're not getting man hours down, we're not getting any benefit. And interestingly enough, that misunderstanding on metrics almost derailed the lean implementation, if you can believe it. But we were able to smooth that out and, uh, and keep going and still get much greater gains. But the point I'm making there is that make sure that the things, the metrics you're looking at and the incentives, because incentives are huge, because I could tell, Michael and I could tell other stories there, that, and, but they can totally sabotage a lean implementation. So to me, those three things, it's appropriate at the time to do it. The man, you can create some kind of system where follow-up is relentless. And also the metrics and incentives are properly aligned. I would say those are the three things you need to really set up. You and I t totally agree with that. I, my background, I do a lot with applying agile and lean and excellence mm -hmm. to sales. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, measures drive behaviors. And oh, you've yeah. got to be very careful with yeah. what you do. And I'll vote for that follow-up. I think yeah. that was really, again, salt of the earth logic that you just put forward there. That was brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you. Michael? What, mate, what have you, I want to ask you a question about, Michael, what have you learned recently on this journey that you didn't know before? What's been a recent insight that you've had? Well, uh, after 30 years of uh, being practitioner and I'm learning a lot, uh, recently I was very, very surprised to find something, I would say validate something that I always feared. And uh, I have a lot of friends, a lot of folks I've known in this business uh, for many years who have got their uh, lean certification or Six Sigma green black belt and so on. And uh, when we were discussing the ideas and they would ask me, how come you're so quickly able to change the company and, and have these implementations much faster than we are able to do? And how come uh, the people that you deal with are not presenting as much resistance to you as we are encountering. And these questions go on and on among us. But uh, I was very, very surprised to find that majority of the people, even my friends that I have been talking to, when we explained to them the simplicity of our approach, they had a hard time changing and twisting their mind from classic waste-based approach to adapting into ours or at least giving it a shot. That resistance among even practitioners to me was extremely surprising recently, I found out, because these are people who talk about change, who talk about uh, resistance to change and the encountering of all kinds of reasons for that resistance. 
and they try to go to their clients and try to smoothen the path and get rid of those resistance elements. And here we are, we are seeing the same resistance elements in them, uh, trying to say, hey, look, everything's up for improvement, right? You preach that. Don't you think your own method is up for improvement? <laughs> that was surprising to me. I learned that in a hard way, in a way. So I had this argument with a dear friend of mine in Michigan. And I said, look, you need to take a look at it. Just give it a shot at it. It's, you're not going to lose anything. You can always go back to your slow way of doing what you like to do. Identifying the uh, eight waste categories and trying to have these different six, 10 or 15 people train them and train them and train them. Mm. Okay. As opposed to we spend, my goodness, we spend about, I would say, we are nonprofit. We spend 30% of our maximum time is spent on training. Maximum. I mean, that's, I'm telling you, really, really high number here. 70 to 80, 85%, we are on the shop floor. We enjoy people doing the things that they understood. They really understand that. If you go to, you know, we have learned, if you look into the engineering side of the industrial uh, approach and industrial systems, it's time and motion study. And right there, time and motion indicates about the person how fast the person can do, if the motion is economically good for him or not, safety factor and all that. The speed is always up to the person. And here we are eliminating that. Speed has nothing to do with the person. Speed has to do with the product and changing the people's mind, even the practitioners, people who have been doing this for 20 plus years. I encountered that uh, fact. It was very hard for me to really accept that, you know? I, well, I really value what you're saying because a lot of the times, it becomes about the tools and the amount of times I see 5S rolled out. Let's roll. We're going to do lean. Let's roll out 5S. And it's like, well, <laughs> what what are you trying to solve? What are you trying to improve here? You know, it's like the, the purpose is a tool and technique, not actually helping people and getting outcomes. Yeah. <laughs> I asked right? Sean to tell you, uh, let me ask Sean to tell you something yeah. really important about 5S approach versus how lean starts with us. We have such a different Sean, go ahead. I think you well, really portray this very well. Well, yeah. Well, I'll. Uh, if sounds okay, I would like to address a point that Brad made that I like quite a bit. Like you're talking about people want to implement a tool. And to me, in a way, I'll defend those people because I think they've been poorly served by conventional lean techniques. Because I think that after they've been trained on things like identifying waste, value stream mapping, they're actually bewildered as to what to do. They actually don't know what to do. And so in the mind of most people, I'll take action. And if I do organize a place, I'll get some kind of benefit. And that's and to me, that's where you get that. Uh, I can't think of the word for it, but you get this gap between what the value stream map says and you're going, I don't know what to do. That's, that's one of the difference. Our diagramming method, it shows what the product, you know, it identifies like where the, where the time's coming from you know, and, and, and it tells you to prioritize actions according to the product's need. And so you might do 5S, but it might not be the first thing. Probably won't be. Like Michael was saying, there's a saying that we've got, which is that in lean, all roads lead to scheduling. Because honestly, I don't think I've seen a shop out of a, you know, we've seen hundreds. I mean, maybe we've seen one where the scheduling is what it should be. To me, there's so many lean problems caused by very, very bad shop floor control. And so one of our first projects, it's, it's generally a beast. Uh, you know, we implement proper scheduling systems, mostly based on theory of constraints. 
Now, what's funny is theory of constraints is a very simple concept, but when you're implementing a scheduling system, it's actually very detailed, very painstaking, and it, it always is a little bit different from company to company. But the point we bring up is we say, what does the product need? Most of the time, it shows scheduling is the problem because it creates all kinds of overproduction throughout a system. Like earlier, Brad, you'd asked Michael about overproduction. When you do overproduction, it shows up as time. Because when you do overproduction, whip is created. When you create whip, you create time. And we capture that and we say, okay, the bulk of the time is coming from all this whip. Why do we have whip? Because our, our uh, release of jobs exceeds our ability to digest them. So we've got to find a way to get those in better balance. And then that, that creates a whole other series of actions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can understand that fully. Yeah. Um, Michael, with... Going forward, I'm sure people are going to have questions and they're going to want to reach out and learn more. How can people access your book and get in touch with yourself and Sean moving forward? Actually, we are very easy to get uh, access to. We have we work for this nonprofit uh, organization that uh, has three uh, issues to address as their charters. And the number one thing that they want to do is to create better environment for manufacturing and service industry. In terms of having these companies in manufacturing and service industry to be successful with uh, higher quality products, faster return to the customer, as well as, of course, safer place to work. So if you are achieving that as a nonprofit, we want to make sure that we are known uh, to people as easy as possible. Our organization's name is Beehive Fund, B-E-E-H-I-V-E-F as Frank, U-N-D, dot org. If you just go there, beehivefund.org, you can see our organization. You can always reach us. And our uh, it's very easy to contact us. It will be my first name, Michael, M-I-C-H at uh, M-I-C-H. AEL at beehivefund.org and Sean's will be s.fields at beehivefund.org. Very simple. You can access us anytime. And as far as the book, you can go to our uh, main page. You can see it there. Click on it. You can go through that or you can go to amazon.com, put Quantum Lean by Fields and Sanders. Easily you can access and buy that. One more thing to add, as a nonprofit, we are always happy to help all types of manufacturers and service folks. If uh, there are companies that are looking into implementing or getting into lean road, we are more than happy to give them uh, pretty much startup points. We even go to their facility, assess that, and give them good ideas of what, what they do. Uh, normally, we charge for that. Quite a number of uh, companies have asked us in the past, we charge for that, but because of recent good uh, folks who have been supporting us, many companies that we have worked for before, they keep on sending us some donation money. So right now we don't charge anything to folks. If there are companies that ask us to assist their operations and their structure and tell them what's the best way, best angle to start their lean journey and implement it in the quickest way, we are able to do that. We spend up to three days in their facility and we don't charge them a penny except our audience pocket money obviously so uh but we don't charge anything for our times and our team of experts are very very sharp in quantum lean we have a number of network members who go out all over the uh, country as well as different countries and, and and provide these services and that's a good way of doing that and if folks who have already started their 
uh, lean journey. We have roughly about 35% of, when we look at last five years, about 35% of our clients are folks who have attempted or started some kind of a lean implementation and lean training and, com- and transformation. And they've reached a point after so many years, they can't go further and they are stuck and they come to us. What do you think? What do you have to say? And we look at them, we say, you know what? You forgot one basic thing. Your scheduling is still a wreck. We need to get after that. So we kind of show them how easy it is to get out of this complexity and look into very simple way of addressing your problem so your people can actually enjoy doing that as opposed to being defensive and being very complex and and, and very perplex in their days. We don't want that. We want, we want them to come happy to work and live happy. So uh, from that angle, we are more than happy to obviously to help the folks. We are happy to offer these free services and they can access our book and they can access us anytime. Oh, that's amazing. Like that is truly helping creating a better future, what you guys are doing. I, I take my hat off to you both. That's what this that. whole podcast is about. You've stretched my thinking and I love that. And thank you. And um, I look forward to staying in touch in the future. I'm sure our guests on this show will gain a lot from our conversation. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Sean. Well, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. What a great episode from Sean and Michael on Quantum Lean. I certainly gained a lot of value from that. The key takeaways for me were to keep things simple and focus on the outcomes you're really looking to achieve, which is greater performance for the organization, its people and customers and better working environment. I think Sean and Michael have both developed a really simple way to achieve this. Second takeaway is focus on the product flow and time. I think the power in that is taking the focus away from employees and their time and their efforts and what they're doing and putting it onto what's most important for the customer can really see through this approach starting from sales right the way through production to delivery and just focusing on that total lead time reduction and saving time and helping things flow for the product that you'll achieve everything and uh, that was that's the biggest takeaway for me for this episode the final one is the piece of measures drive behavior I see it so often in what I do in my working career and it is true and taking the time to actually consider how are we measuring people how are we recognizing people And what behaviours do these measures and recognition approaches drive will actually be quite shocking for many organisations. And again, a simple tweak in that approach can create great outcomes and improvement going forward. So everyone, thank you so much, Sean and Michael. Great episode. I hope you all gained some value. Bye for now.